I am reading from Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, going down through verse 24. If you have no scriptures with you, it will be on the screen for you. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best place, is saying to them, When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you, and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Seat said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Then my house may be filled. For I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. 
think someone's sorry. excited. And sorry, sorry. I was excited about this message, but someone else took like da 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 charge. <laughs> that was wonderful. I uh, I can say amen to that. Most times I wouldn't have liked that, but I like that. Well, it has to be loud like that for him to hear it. Now, i got to share with you a couple things about this passage, and you may have picked up on them if you read it along with me. It's about being invited. It's about being asked to attend something, and cultural proper behavior, and what was expected and not expected of people who were invited to a party, to a supper, to a feast. I'm going to give you a little teaser toward for the end of the message. There is also a great feast that we all are invited to that Jesus will serve at in the kingdom of heaven at the resurrection of the dead. There will be a great feast there. We're all invited. Interesting that Jesus gives us a little glimpse into how this transpires. And I really want to say a lot of things to you about this passage. And I will as we go along. But I have to tell you that in that culture, shame and honor were huge. In other words, in the first section where he's talking about where someone sits at a good seat and they ask him to sit at a worse seat, that brings shame. And that would be, uh, shall we say, socially embarrassing and an embarrassment to his family. And it would be something that everybody there, not just once, but for the rest of their lives and his life, would remember that he shamed himself. It's not like it's a one-time thing and they forget about it. They never forget when you've been shamed. Our culture isn't like that. Per se. If someone makes a mistake after a while, we say, you know, they've learned from their mistake, they're better. Because they haven't done it again. But it's not the same there. Also, if you look at the passage, you'll see a lot of different things that happen. And one of the first things that happens, Jesus is setting this up, is a man who has dropsy. Um, a lot of different things for what that means, but let's just say his body didn't work right. And Jesus asked if it was alright to heal on the Sabbath, but they've said that that's work. But is work and healing the same thing? Isn't God the one who does the healing and not Jesus? If we do something for God on the Sabbath, or if God does something, is He violating it? And Jesus is asking, is it okay for God to do that? And they don't answer him. And he asks them a question, if you have a donkey and he's fallen into the pit, is it illegal to help him or can you allow yourself to do that? And, and they wouldn't answer that either because on the Sabbath they would have. You're not going to let an animal suffer on a day when by their rules that would be considered work. Why? Let me, let me share with you how this works. There's a couple of dynamics here and I think you'll appreciate this as we go further along in this message. One of them is this, that... People who abide by their law and their, their very high standards. Now, if you look at the crowd he's talking to, you got attorneys who know the law and Pharisees who know the Mosaic law. So you got a bunch of people who are very legalistic in their thinking. It's black and white. There is no gray matter. It's this way, 
or it's that way. It's, and if it's this way, it's right. If it's that way, it's wrong. It's condemnable. And so this is the kind of crowd he's talking to. And they can't see beyond what they know is true. And so when, when you look at that society and that culture, everything that they're trying to talk about and Jesus is speaking with goes very much against how they've interpreted God's way of doing things. When He says that you will throw a feast, don't invite your family, friends, and the wealthy. Invite people who can't pay you back, like the poor, the broken, uh, the lame, and the blind. And He said that there's a reason for that. But in that culture, there's not a reason for that. <laughs> you always invite socially people who are of your same status level. You do not go to a different status level, lower or higher, and invite them. It's your friends and neighbors and family, not people who aren't in your in-group. That's what they call them, your in-group. Today, in that culture, in that environment, they still think that way. There are two sets of groups. Your in-group and your out-group. And in-group are people who you associate with, who you um, consider like family. The out-group is anybody you do not associate with or do not know. Now, an out-group person, if they move into your neighborhood, and they're a part of your neighborhood for a period of time, they begin to talk to that person and begin to see if they fit in the in-group. If they fit in the in-group, they're treated not like neighbors, but like family. This different than us. In-group for them is treated like family. Not like friends. Family. They have family and not family. Now, we have acquaintances, we have friends, we have friends of friends, we have people we used to go to school with and things like that. They don't do it like that. They're, here's an example. Suppose you're from a little town in the Middle East and you move to another country. And you need to go, and here's an example, to a, a hotel and get a room, but um, some of the better rooms are reserved for the more preferred guests, and they're going to put you in a bad room. And you say, but, but you don't understand, I'm traveling, I'm really tired, I need a good room, lots of room to stretch out, I've got a family here. They're going to say no. And then, gonna, then the conversation might go like this. You know, I'm from this little town in the Middle East, and um, the guys would say, you know your last name. I've heard that last name before. Is it possible you're related to so-and-so? And they start having this conversation about who they know. And then they find out that they're both from the same area geographically in a little town, and something happens in that culture. Not for us. We just go, man, that's kind of a small world type thing. Still can't have a room. What they do is they say, you know what? You're family. And I'm going to risk for you. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure you have the best room, not just a good room. And they will do whatever they can to help that person, not because they knew them, understand, but because they're connected. Make sense? That's socially different than our country. 
And it's hard to understand these things and see what's going on in this passage until you hear how they hear it as compared to how we hear it. And and we're going to look at one more thing that they understand that we don't when we read this passage. They understand it in a way that is quite remarkable. Here's how I can begin to share with you um, how our society is different. When I was in college, I struggled for years feeling like I was the odd man out. I didn't have a big social circle. I, I was mostly socially shy. I didn't hang around with a lot of friends. I had like three or four, maybe. Other guys in the dorm and stuff like that, I knew them, but we weren't friends. I just hang out with the same guys all the time. Well, when I did get invited anywhere by anybody, I would often cancel any plans I might have had of my own or otherwise simply because I was invited and happy to be invited. Because I wasn't socially active very often because I didn't have a lot of socializing friends when someone outside of my friend said, you want to go to this? I'm going, they asked me. They must think I'm special. They must really, really want me to be there or they wouldn't have asked. And that's how I thought, right? Maybe you think that way too. I'm not sure. But I did. And I do sometimes still. So, it was very rare when I refused an invitation and it usually did not matter what the invitation was for. Some of my friends would ask me why I went would say, they asked me. And I thought, well, you know, they asked me because I'm important. That's what I was thinking. I was important enough they really wanted me there they wouldn't have asked me. Nobody asked me anywhere. So when someone asked me somewhere, it must have been big for them. It wasn't big for them. It was big for me. Right? So I was included. I liked it. But what I didn't understand, when I explained it to them, they said, that doesn't make any sense. Well, looking back, I now realize why. It's because they had many more things that they were asked to be a part of than I was. Most of my friends were very social people. But I felt honored to be asked. My friends, since they were more social, getting invited to stuff happened all the time. It's like having a full planner of invites. If you wanted to do something every hour of the day, that's what their lives were like. So they could pick and choose on what they wanted to do based on the invites. I got one a month or at the most. And they're trying to figure out how they can do the things they want to do, let alone what they're invited to. So inviting friends for them was normal. So everybody in their circle, which was more than just me, since they were social people, would have been about 200 people, and everything was invited to everybody, was invited to everything. See that? How that worked for them? So they didn't feel obligated. Going for them was optional, because they had so many. I did not experience this. One of the greatest struggles I had was one time I got invited to two things and I didn't know whether to say yes or no and which one to say yes to because I wasn't used to saying I can't go. And what was interesting was I felt if I turned down an invitation I was hurting the person who asked. That's what I felt like. But my friends' friends who asked them knew that if they turned it down it's because their invitation to go was optional. Because they already had so many invites from so many different avenues. 
It's like this. True, true story. Last year I invited the bishop to come to our 180th. And I invited him like two, three months ahead of time. And they said, oh, you don't understand. He's a very busy man. You need to ask about a year in advance. And I'm going, a year? I can't even imagine that. Being so booked that you need a year's notice. There are people in this world who are busier than that. Being booked out years. Try to get an appointment at Four Rivers where I work with a therapist. Okay, the next one's December. You know, it's like, really? It's kind of like that. And so what I'm trying to share with you is our culture and our experiences of our culture are different for each one of us. But if someone asked me, I always said yes unless I could not absolutely go. And, and I very rarely ever said no to anything. Because I liked being asked. It was unusual. <laughs> Maybe for you, you're the same way. And the reason I mention that is because when you feel like it's an honor to be asked, you feel like you're on the outside looking in. And this is your chance to step in and be a part of the inside. Part of a group of people that you want to be a part of. And that's what I felt like. In that culture, we're going to see it's a little bit different. I want to show you something in Jeremiah chapter 1. And this will help us get there. Um, got it for you on the screen. Uh, Jeremiah, as many of you know, uh, became a prophet. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, this is Jeremiah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Here's what he says, I must decline. Now I'm thinking Jeremiah didn't have a whole lot of other gods offering him the prophet job. <laughs> And he's not declining because God doesn't know what he's talking about. But the question is, when God called him, does it look like he doesn't trust God? God says, I, I ordained and sanctified him. And he says, oh, I'm a youth. It's too soon. It's not time. He's making an excuse, isn't he? Right? So what's the story here? Why does Jeremiah refuse God? Here's the boldness of God saying, I made you for this purpose. I'm calling you. It's time. He says, I can't go. I can't speak. But he's talking to God. <laughs> he can speak, right? But he refuses, right? And, and isn't that kind of funny that how that works? Um, and you think maybe, maybe, maybe there's something else going on here than why Jeremiah refused, and there is. Let me tell you what uh, an example of how that works. There was a student from Greece came to the United States to go to college began making friends. Now he's the kind of person, when you make friends, they're your in-group, and your out-group is everybody you don't know. So he had his friends, and his friends would ask him to go to a movie or other social events, and every time he declined. But, it made him mad that they never asked him twice. Because in the culture there, you're supposed to decline the invitation first. 
The second time you're asked is the serious ask. You're really, really wanted here. And, but they never asked you again, and he thought, how rude those Americans are. They're not asking me twice. What's wrong with them? And when he finally found out that Americans ask you one time, if you say no, we respect your no. Unless we're pushy. <laughs> and there are some rude folks that way. But for the most part, if someone says no, we're okay, fine, you know, no big deal, no, no sweat. And so he had to learn to say what he really wanted the first time he was asked in this culture. But Jeremiah was from that culture. And God asked him, and he said no. So the Lord comes again to him and says, Do not say, this is God, I am a youth, for you shall go, all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak it. And the next verse says, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And what does Jeremiah do? First of all, the Lord puts forth his hand and touches his mouth. And the Lord says to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. This is the second time God asks it. He's supposed to refuse the first time. That's what he's learned to do. God he is going along with the cultural understanding. He asks him twice. And this time, Jeremiah goes. Because the very next thing is Jeremiah starts to prophesy. He doesn't say yes, he just starts doing what God asks. He doesn't say, okay, I accept. The second invitation is Jeremiah's acceptance of God's asking, his invite. And so when that happens, then you see the double invite, don't you? See, God speaks Jeremiah's language. He speaks the language of the double invite, which is what they think needs to happen in that culture. And so you see in our passage for today a bunch of invites going out. Invitation, sit at the lower seat. Now, here, here's what's funny. When, when I used to read this passage without understanding this cultural understanding, I thought everybody was already there. And I just had to sit in the wrong seat. <laughs> they don't show up at a certain time. They have what they call Mediterranean time. Mediterranean time means if you say it's going to happen after sundown, it could happen any time after sundown until midnight. But when we say it's going to happen after sundown, we think 15 minutes after the sun goes down, they're about to be there. We are time-oriented. In this culture, we go by a clock. And there they go by an agenda. Not by the time of the agenda, but by the agenda. They arrive after sundown. You say, come for dinner. They're going to go, okay, well, come for dinner. But there's no specific time they'll show up for your dinner and your food might be cold. And you're going to think they're rude, and they're going to think you were because you, you, you prepared before they got there. Why? They want some socialization time before food is ever served. To hang out and talk and be friends. And then we'll get the food going. No hurry. Food's not the important thing, it's the people. That's the way they think. So, here's what I thought. Like I said, I thought in that passage that Everybody's already there. Oh, I sat in the wrong seat. 
Um, therefore, I'm being asked to move, but it's not that way. I've arrived before others. Because somebody's going to arrive before others until the last person gets there. Mm-hmm. Here's what they say in that culture. If the boss is late, he's not late. Once the boss gets there, it's on time. Anybody after the boss gets there is late. Anybody who's there before the boss gets there is on time. Even if the boss is two hours late. It doesn't work in our schedule like that. But that's how they think. So, if I arrive and I sit in a seat that looks very nice and plush, because I'm from our country, and I think, hey, nobody else is sitting here. It's kind of like at the seventh inning of a baseball game, we all kind of slip down to the lower bowl and sit in the better seats because nobody's coming. Or people have left. They'll check tickets sometimes, but if they don't, it's good to go. Well, there, it's, oh, nobody's sitting there. I'm going to sit here. And then the person who is invited shows up for that seat. Jesus says, never take the best seat. No matter how soon you get there, take the worst seat and be invited to join closer to the more powerful wielding people in the end room. Don't be pushed out because that shame will say you're never welcome in that group again. That's why I said it's the one thing that they remember for the rest of their lives. Once you're excluded and have shamed yourself, you shame the host and everybody at the party and you're no longer part of hosting or the family. Simple as that. So Jesus says, don't do that. But these Pharisees and lawyers were doing just that. Taking the best seats for themselves and doing things like that. It's kind of sad. And yet we get to this parable of the Great Supper. I talked about it on Vision Sunday, about how it's the vision for this church, and I had no idea about the double invite at that time. Here's where it starts. It says, A certain man, this is verse 16, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now, we don't do that. We don't go, Okay, come to dinner at 6 next Wednesday, and then go and send somebody say, hey, it's time to go eat. It's at six, it's 6 o'clock, it's time to come eat. <laughs> we just don't do that. We expect people to keep the calendar and schedule and do that. They don't. Here's why. When the first invitation goes out, it's not for the next day. For this great feast, it could have been a month, six months, even a year away from a wedding, which this particular feast was representative of the great wedding feast. So it could have been a year in advance notice. And they send all the invitations out. They don't put RSVP because they send all the invitations out to the invited guests that the, the person wants there. They assume that everybody's going to say no. That's what they're supposed to say. And what they do, because the no isn't, I'm not coming. It's, you need to ask me again. <laughs> so, the list goes out. The invitation goes out, and the people are invited into a process. They check the reputation of the host first. Then they ask to see who's on the guest list. 
to see if they are part of that crowd, and part of that in-group. And they check any other concerns that they might have about this meal before anything else happens. Mm-hmm. You see, this is why they say no, so they can check it out and think about it and see if it fits with their society and their culture and their family. This person who throws this dinner is representative of Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father throwing a great feast in heaven for eternity to start off our day one there. And he invites everybody But because of sin, we all said, no. We can't come. (laughs) But it takes time. And so it did here. And it says, it takes a while. But when it's time for supper, the servant says on the screen, come for all things are now ready. You ever heard that before in Scripture? I prepare a place for you. When my Father says everything's ready, I will come and gather my own to myself that you may be with me. But of the day and the hour, I don't know. Only the Father knows. The one who's throwing the meal knows. And when everything's ready, a trumpet will sound and my servant will go out and bring those invited to the feast and say it's time for all things are ready. And so, that's what happens. The host of the meal says it's ready. Now go to the people I have invited who said no, of course, and tell them it's ready. Fully expecting that they knew that his reputation, his guest list, the meal, and everything was perfect. And they all began, all of them, made excuses. Listen to these excuses, and you're going to understand why this does not happen. The first one that says, I got a piece of ground. I just bought it. And i got to go look at it, because I haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking you to have an excuse so that I might do that. Mm-hmm. Why does that not make sense with what I just said about how they check the list mm-hmm. and they do all these things before they accept anything? They don't buy a piece of ground without using the ground. Believe it or not, in their land purchases, they got to test the ground for a period of time before they bought it. To see if it would produce a crop. Mm-hmm. To see if it would uh, keep livestock alive, if it was healthy for them. They would do all that before they purchased it. They tested it out. Why? Because that ground meant livelihood <coughs> and honor. If you own land, you're honored. Without land, you're peasant in that society. Mm-hmm. So the man says, I bought a piece of ground, I've got honor now, but I haven't looked at it yet. <laughs> Doesn't even know what his honor is about. This does not happen, okay? 
It's a ridiculous statement. It would never happen. And that's why that's funny. And he says, please let me be excused. The next guy. Oh my gosh, I like this one. He says, I have bought me some oxen. You know, I've got a plow in my ground, and I've got five of them. I need to test them, see if they'll actually do what I bought them to do. Anybody here ever buy a car without looking at it and test around it? Anybody ever um, checked out things before you purchase them, or you just go, uh, just, just give me whatever you want to give me, and I'm going to check it out later. We're not like that. Neither are they. You don't buy something that's going to provide your family sustenance in that culture without making sure to actually do it. So again, this is an excuse that says, I can't come, although I've known about this meal for a year, because I need to do something that nobody ever does. It's an excuse. It's not a real reason. And the third one, the guy says, I just got married. Oh, goodness. I've got to be careful with why he said that. But the one reason I will share this is the wife is a part of his family. In that culture, you invite the husband, the wife comes. You don't have to invite her separate. She's welcome. And he's saying, no, she's not welcome. Because I have been married now. You only invited me, not her. That my status is different. You didn't mean to invite her. No, I can't come. That doesn't happen. Again, once you're in the in-group, anybody related to you is in the in-group. So once you're married, she's in the in-group. He can come. That's an excuse, right? So, here's what happens. And I don't know about you, but this passage to me from this point forward can be life changing mm-hmm. he reports it the servant reports these things to his master the master of the house being angry being angry hear this the master of the house is angry mm-hmm. they dishonored him they shamed him by saying you are of no reputation your guest list is a fraud and everything about what you're doing I don't want a part of So he's angry because he's not of bad reputation. And he worked hard to make this a great feast and nobody said yes the second time. So he says to his servant, go now into the streets and lanes of the city and bring to me the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant goes out and says, Master, I did. But for some reason, there's still room. Well, maybe it's because they're the same culture and he asked them one time. Go out and ask the poor, the man, the lame, the blind. He said, we asked them, but they wouldn't come. Listen to this next. This gets me, man. This gets me big. The master says, Go in the highways and the hedges where they live and tell them I need it. They really are invited. I want those people 
They're supposed to say no, but they don't expect the second invite. Because they don't get them. The broken and the poor and the lame are the outgroup. They're physically unable to be a part of an in-group because God has shunned them by having them have physical maladies. And he says, go and compel them. That word says, go tell them, I insist that the master of the feast wants you. How many of us would respond to saying, God really does want you. He's not kidding. He's not giving up on you. He's coming back the second time and saying, I really need it. I want you in my house. I want you in my family, in my anger. I want to change your life. I want you to have the best seats. I want you to have the finest clothes. I'll kill a fatty calf for you. And we're going, but no, I don't get that in this life. I don't get invites. And we keep saying no, it's not really for me because now we're saying no because we don't think we fit. Until Mm -hmm. we see the first broken person walk in. Or the second. Or the third. Or the next one. And say, oh, hey, really mean it. He really means it. They're welcome here. They're wanted here. And the master of the feast is none of those men that were invited originally are going to taste this feast. Because they don't trust me. They don't want my supper. What is God's invitation? Is it the free gift of life in Jesus Christ to come all who are broken, weary, trouble the soul and find rest, to find peace? Did he just mean some of us? That there's some of us have been excluded because of what we've done or what we've been or, or what we've said? Do you know who got the invitation first? It was the house of Israel. And they said no. To the prophets, to more prophets. Mm-hmm. They said no to his son. But Jesus only asked them once. You can believe in me. And they said, crucify him. And they crucified him. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus rose from the dead, He did not come to say, I'm not asking those people again. (laughs) He came to say, I'm asking those who don't think they're invited first. And then I'll go back to the house of Israel and they're welcome too. For everyone is invited to my kingdom, to my supper at the beginning of the end of eternity. We here are a church of the second group of invitees, the broken, the hurting. And maybe we're not sure the invitation is really for us or not, or if it's even real. But I keep saying, you're welcome here. You're wanted here. You're loved 
here. You see, the first crowd doesn't come to the feast for their reasons. The second crowd doesn't come because of their reasons. Different reasons. Because they don't really think they're part of anything. Or that they've been shunned by church. Shunned by believers. Shunned by people who don't belong to the in-group. Shunned by other people saying, you can't go there. You know what I'd love to hear about this church? And I don't mean this in a bad way. Well, people would start saying around our community, that's the people, place for people who, who, uh, who are addicted and broken and can't, can't do anything right, go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, yeah, they're welcome here. That's the kind of people God wants. The kind of people that need hope. Mm-hmm. Not the kind of people that think they got it all together. <laughs> I promise you, I walked in here broken the first time I came in. Y'all know my story. I was a pastor not wanting to preach. I heard the call to preach twice. Did you know that? First time I accepted, then I quit. I quit for a long time. God invited me back into the ministry and put me here. Do you see, maybe, a pattern? That God is welcoming people who gave up on church, on God, on themselves, here. Welcoming them here. I believe that's what He's doing. Have you refused to come to the party? Have you refused the invitation the first time? Well, here's what God says. All things are ready. It's time to come and be a part of what God's planned. God asks you very simply, will you come and will you make merry with me? He's not asking for any other reason that He wants you here. So do I. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know what it's felt like to go to a church and not feel like I was at home. To feel like everybody was looking at me thinking I was nuts or crazy or uh, I didn't even go on there. 